Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Please turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we'll pick up our exposition of this book at verse 16. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, and we'll explain through verse 18. The message today is entitled, Our Good and Great God. Our Good and Great God. We're going to learn about the goodness and greatness of God through this text this morning. In the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot about trials and temptations. Trials and temptations. We've discussed that God intends us to suffer, having intense joy, so that our faith is tested. Then we discussed the theology of temptation and saw how it originates from within, not from God. We also saw in the exposition of James 13 to 15 that one enters into temptation via a trial. That is to say, trial and temptation are closely related. And in fact, if you remember from the expositions, the word translated trial and temptation come from the same Greek word. And the way we translate depends on context. Thank you. When one does not persevere through a trial with joy and consistent humble prayer and grow as a result of that trial, what is the alternative way to respond? Temptation. He or she finds himself trapped in the merciless and natural process of ruin that only begun with the failure to obey the command in verse 2. You don't respond to your trials with joy, then you're opening the door to temptation, which just further leads to death. In other words, kind of to sum up where we've gone so far, assurance and maturity are the results of responding to trials rightly. Temptation, leading to death and sin, are the results of responding to trials naturally. But James isn't done talking about trials and temptations. It may not be completely obvious on the surface as you read this small chunk, but verses 2 to 18 are connected in the sense that they carry the same main idea or point. To put it another way, verses 2 to 18 are bound into a loose unity by the theme of trials and the nature of the Christian response that is appropriate. Now, as a side note, as a pastor of this church, one thing that I emphasize over and over again is the absolute necessity for you, every single one of you, to know theology. Some people try to avoid theology because they believe it's divisive. But properly understood, though, it's uniting. A healthy church is not comprised of people who have numerous different views about who God is. Amen? So all I simply mean by theology is the discipline of seeking to know and understand God more, as revealed in his Bible, key phrase, so that we may glorify him through our love and obedience. 
That's all I mean by theology. That's what it means. So let me apologize to you on behalf of every single Christian minister that has given you a bad taste of doctrine and theology. Will you accept my apology? Notice the order I just, I just said here. We need to know, understand God more. Only that we can do that is by studying the Bible so that we can glorify Him through our love and obedience. Notice the order. You must know God before you can love Him. And we must love Him before we can have a desire to obey Him. Many say they love God, but then you begin to hear their speech and observe their lives, and you quickly realize that the God they say they love is not the God of the Bible. Many people are moral. But they are moral not because they have a genuine, earnest desire to be, but because they have to be or else. So having no theology has an eternal consequence. It also has a temporal, earthly consequence. If you don't have a deep sense of knowing God, and a deep yearning to continue to know God more, you will not know how to respond to trials. If you respond to trials by pridefully questioning God, shaking your fist heavenward, it's because you have a superficial, inaccurate theology. If you respond to trials by rationalizing sin, it's because you have a superficial, inaccurate theology. If you respond to trials by attempting to appease God through good works, thinking that if I just do enough good charitable works, God will remove this from my life, it's because you have a superficial and accurate theology. If you respond to trials by self-righteously blaming it on the devil or others, it's because you have a superficial and accurate theology. If you respond to trials by sinking into hopeless depression, it's because you have a superficial, inaccurate theology. Worst of all, if you respond to a trial by abandoning Christ and His church, it's because you have a very superficial and inaccurate theology. So in this passage, we're going to unpack this Lord's Day. James is going to help us develop a more accurate, thorough, deep, robust, rich, profound theology. And here's how I'm going to lay it out for you this morning. In James 1, 16 to 18, there are two theological convictions to help guide you through trials. Two theological convictions that will help guide you through trials. If you really own these two convictions you will be able to stand firm and weather the most difficult trial in your life. As a reminder, you don't know when these trials are coming. You don't know. Tomorrow you could wake up and be facing the most horrific trial imaginable. Or it could be next year or it could be next decade. But the preparation starts now. 
Amen? Now, the first theological conviction to help guide you through temptations and trials is this. Number one, God is good in character. God is good in character. Verses 16 and 17. Let's read that. Do not be deceived, my brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Paul says, do not be deceived. Literally, it's a wandering. It means to cause to wander, to be led astray, to be misled, to, be, to cause to err, to be mistaken, and to form a wrong judgment. That's what it means to be deceived. Now, what is James talking about? Don't be deceived about what? Okay? Considering the context again, remember? Do not be deceived about God's work in trials and His absence in temptation. Do not be deceived about God's work in trials and His absence in temptation. James is saying, Christians, my beloved brothers and sisters, you must not be led astray into thinking that God Himself is tempting you to evil. In essence, he's saying, do not form a wrong judgment about God's relationship with regard to suffering and temptation. Let's start there. God is good, therefore He cannot tempt you to evil. God is good, therefore anything that happens to you is not bad. That truth will keep us grounded. And that truth is further elaborated on in verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. We see clearly from this verse that the source of every good thing is from God. Listen, both intrinsically and comprehensively. Intrinsically meaning that the quality of goodness is essential to his being. He cannot do anything that's not good. Because it would be contrary to his nature. And all that he gives comprehensively, all that he gives is good. Including trials. Psalm 119.68 says, You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Psalm 107, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. We know that song well. We sing it a lot. But I wish that song talked about more the goodness of God. He is good. Therefore, His love endures forever. His love endures forever because He's good. Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all He's made. Now listen, this is fundamental. I bet you when you walked here this morning, you could have told me that God is good. But we seem to forget that, don't we? We seem to forget that God is good and we, we don't really meditate on that, what it means. We have to remember that God is good all the time, even in the midst of our trials. He is good, which means nothing He does or allows is bad. Nothing. And now that should be in your mind all the time. I remember when I got a call from my sister, February 2013. I was studying for some assignments, 
in my little study nook in my room in California. I got a call from my sister. As soon as I hit the button, put up to my ear, all I could hear was sobbing. And I said, what's, what's going on? The next two words I heard, I'll never forget. She said, Mom's dead. I stood up, walked over to my bed, fell on my knees, and I had a split second to think about what am I going to say to my unbelieving sister, who for all I know is thinking about killing herself. The very first words out of my mouth was this, God is good. Don't ever forget that. God is good. And even though this is horrible, and I can't explain to you why it's happening, there's a God in heaven. He is good. I told my sister, don't do anything stupid. Don't go off and do something to yourself. Don't go off and say all types of blasphemous things and just intensify the situation. And all I could think until the whole, the whole time I, to the whole process, all I could think was God is good. God is good. God is good. James goes on and says, every good thing is from above coming down from the Father of Lights. The Father of Lights, it's, it's just an ancient Jewish title for God, referring to him as the creator and giver of lights in the form of the sun, the moon, the stars, Genesis 1. But unlike the physical light that we see, you know, it's constantly varying, especially in Seattle, where it's always covered by some white clouds or gray clouds. Sometimes you see the stars, sometimes you don't. So the physical light, it, 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 it wanes, it, it, it varies, it, 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 it goes in and out of our sight. But opposed uh, to that, God, there is no variation or shifting shadow. Here we see the doctrine of what theologians call the immutability of God. The immutability of God, which is to simply say that God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. God is immutable. He is unchanging. He is not fickle, capricious, or, or inconsistent like us men. You know, one day we feel so happy and, and joyful and motivated. The next day, all we want to do is go into our room and shut the door and be by ourselves. Right? God's not like that. And praise the Lord. Amen? God is not like us fickle-minded people. Uh, Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Psalm 33, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever and his and uh, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And I had a last-minute hymn request this morning, and thankfully, they were able to pull it out. Great is thy faithfulness. As soon as I read this text, I thought of that hymn. Great is thy faithfulness. You know that the music we sing is good when it matches what the Bible says. Amen? The hymn writer of Great is Thy Faithfulness got this. The first verse, Great is Thy Faithfulness, O God my Father. And then who remembers what it says next? There is no shadow of turning with thee. Sound familiar? James 1.17 Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. And thou hast been, and thou hast forever wilt be. That's the doctrine of immutability. He is unchanging. And knowing that God's character does not change should help guide you through trials because you always have the comfort of knowing that He's always intrinsically and comprehensively good and eternally unchanging. And if he's always good and always unchanging, that means that whatever happens in this life, God intends it for your good and never, ever for evil. God is good in character. That's the first theological convictions that you need to own. Tattoo that on your heart. God is good, and don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. The second theological conviction to help guide you through trials and temptations is this. God is great in salvation. God is great in salvation. Verse 18. If you want to make it through a trial and have victory over your temptations, you have to be thankful that he has sovereignly saved you. If you are always thankful that He sovereignly saved you, then you will persevere through your trials. It's when we forget that God has sovereignly saved us, when we were once hopelessly lost. When we forget that is when we succumb to temptation and sin and death. Now, I would argue that God's greatness in salvation is the best illustration of God's goodness. You'll see why. Verse 18, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be the kind of first fruits among His creatures. Okay. Verse 18, let me read, let me read that first half again. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. You know what this is? This is the doctrine of election. And we're going to spend some time talking about this this morning. Why? Because we're directly confronted with it. Head on. As a side note, and everybody listen. I know that many have never been instructed rightly regarding this teaching. So if you just heard the word election and you already have some type of stress building up in your mind, 
you need to stop and listen because you've never been taught this doctrine rightly. Many have never been taught rightly. Therefore, there are many hardened hearts. There are many hard rock presuppositions. And that needs to stop. I've also come to see that being taught wrongly regarding this doctrine can cause confusion. I've come to see that many, including people who have attended church for decades, have never taken the time to study and deal with it. And admittedly, I guess I can see why this doctrine is so hard for some people. You know why? I didn't grow up in church. I didn't grow up in church. The benefit of not growing up in church is that I don't have a million different teachings in my mind. I never dealt with a lot of the church drama that many of you have. I got saved. I had a Paul conversion at age 22. And by God's sheer wonderful grace, he placed the right teaching into my hands very early in my conversion. Therefore, I don't have a lot of stuff to sift through. But it's also hard for some people because I know it's the most pride-crushing, unnatural, unflattering doctrine in the Bible. And people hate it because it strips man of his self-glorification and rightly restores the glory that is due to God. And also let me just say, before we take a deeper look at verse 18, that our doctrinal statement of SVBC does affirm this. Our doctrinal statement reads, and I quote, Salvation is based upon the sovereign, free election of God. So if you're a member, you've already signed on to this. So it shouldn't be too new. But for those who in our midst who have not joined yet, that, that, that is a prerequisite for membership. Also, the doctrine of, our, of election is a teaching distinctive of our church. And if you haven't read our distinctives, I highly encourage you to do so. They're online. And lastly, let me just say this, okay? No doctrine in Scripture will help you cope with suffering more than this doctrine will. And I'm going to show you. Look at the text again so you don't think I'm making this up. In the exercise of His will, it can be rendered as by His own will. And it And this verb expresses the idea of deliberate and specific exercise of volition. That's a lexical meaning. The verb expresses the idea of deliberate and specific exercise of volition. And also, what what helps us understand this more clearly is it's in the emphatic position in the Greek. Meaning, at the beginning of a Greek sentence, the word order matters. So if it's placed at the beginning of the Greek sentence, that's what the, the uh, writer is trying to emphasize. If we, if we try to emphasize the action in college, we put the verb first, we're going to fail. right? You can't do that in English grammar. But in Greek, that's how they emphasize what they're trying to get across. They put it first in the sentence, and guess what? This verb is first. James wants you to get it. He wants you to understand that this is his will, his doing. 
And it's in this position to further reinforce that the idea that God's uninfluenced, and listen, unadulterated will was the force behind your salvation. It was not yours. Salvation is God's choice, not ours. Left to our own, we would never choose Him. We are not neutral. We are born into spiritual deadness. It was through His sovereign will that He washed away our sin, granted forgiveness, repentance, and faith. And you know what? This idea is scattered all over the Bible. And as I was preparing this message, I heard a, a preacher say that, you know, you know, admittedly, this, this, is a, this is a doctrine that's going, that takes a lifetime to really sort of get, get the entire biblical view here. Meaning, there is so much in the Word of God that addresses this, it takes a lifetime to, 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 to cover it all. That's why Charles Spurgeon said, I cannot find in Scripture any other doctrine than this. It is the essence of the Bible. Wow. It is the essence of the Bible. God's sovereignty and salvation. I agree 100%. So, I don't have time, like I said, to go through all of the passages, but let's look at a few here. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope. He caused us to be born again. Colossians 2.13 When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him. You didn't make yourself come alive. He made you come alive. Ephesians 2, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. So there's Peter and Paul. They agree with each other. Now what about our Lord Jesus? Our Master? Now it can't be any clearer than this. John 15, 16. You did not choose me but I chose you. It cannot get any clearer. Now, what about those verses that seem to discuss man's free will? Okay, Because if we're going to be biblical, we, we, need, we need to be ready to answer those questions. right? So we can't just be one-sided. We can't just uh, pick verses that, that seem to fit our theology. We need to let the Scripture inform our theology, right? Okay, so let's, let's, let's see a couple here. How about John 1, verse 12? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You hear that a lot. To justify man's free will. But listen, ask yourself, is that verse really saying that a dead child of Satan, which is what we are naturally, become God's child through our own free will? Is that what it's really saying? No. How so? Well, let's keep reading. Again, context is king. Verse 13. Who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. No one has ever come into the world physically by his or own will or plan. From conception 
to gestation, to birth. We were just a passive recipient. I mean, in your, in your mother's womb, could you say, Mom, I'm not ready to come out yet? That's foolish, right? In fact, Jesus uses this analogy of birth in John 3, in the first half of John 3. Just like we had no say, we, had, we were clueless with regard to our physical birth. It's the same way, spiritually. No one has ever become born again by his own will. Okay, well, what about John 3.16? I mean, come on. Everyone knows that. I mean, there's even a popular country song out right now called John 3.16. Crazy. I know Mandy knows it. I've heard it too. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's because, I mean, it's indicative of the cultural Christianity that permeates regions of our country. Anyhow, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now let me just say, for the sake of time, this text does not teach that fallen man has the ability to choose Christ. So what does it teach? Well, first of all, a little bit of exegesis here again. There is no word whoever in the Greek. The word whoever expresses a phrase in the Greek which is very difficult to translate into English. But, no, I won't go there. Literally, the text reads, in order that every, uh, in order that every, the believing, excuse me, this is the literal, so it's kind of weird. In order that every, the believing in him, not to perish, have everlasting life. How would you like if that was the translation in your Bible, right? You, you would do what I just did every time. The literal word again is every the believing. Every the one believing. So what do you do? How do you, what do you do with that? You're, you're, a, Greek, you're a Greek student. You're a, you're a translator of the Bible. How are you going to uh, get this across so that people don't miss what the author's getting to? Well, it would, it, would, it would be better, and I'm not the only one that, that, that thinks this. The text, in essence, is saying all the believing ones. All the believing ones will not perish. That's what's being communicated. It is saying that there's no such thing as a believing one who does not receive eternal life. So the emphasis is not on the whosoever, which is what some of our friends may like to emphasize. The emphasis, according to the biblical writer, is that the believing ones will not perish. Those persons who are born from above will escape hell. Can you get man's free will to that? No? You'd have to do some eisegesis to get that. And you'd have to ignore what the whole Bible teaches about Sovereignty and salvation. Also knowing what the Bible teaches about the nature of man, you have to ask, can a dead man believe willingly? Can a dead man believe willingly? And how can the fleshly mind, which is at enmity against God, Romans 8, believe willingly? I'll let you answer that one. So what about this so-called free will? Well, I hope you can see based on James 1 and those cross-references that we quickly dealt with 
There's no such thing as man's free will in the sense that he has the ability to choose to be born again. It's a myth. It's untrue. There is no free will in the Bible. There is only bondage of the will. Yet at the same time, the Bible indicts us for our sin. There is no free will, but there is human responsibility. Spurgeon again said, I do not believe that man's free will has ever saved a soul, but man's free will has been the ruin of multitudes. We cannot do that which is contrary to our nature. Just like God. God cannot do that which is contrary to his nature, therefore he can't do evil. Trying to get to John 3, okay. Likewise, man who is dead in his sin, at enmity with God, evil, cannot do that which is good on his own because it would be against his nature. So therefore, there's a miracle that needs to take place. And so here's why this doctrine is so important. If you don't have a strong dose of the doctrine of election and sovereignty in your notion of salvation, you are robbing God of his rightful glory. And if you think God does not have the power to elect, or that he fails to exercise his power in salvation, you might as well just be consistent. Be consistent. And think that he's also powerless and removed from your trials. If you're going to say that no way God can intercede in my life, it's up to me, then what makes you say that he has the power or even the desire to intercede into your life to give you the trial and to help you persevere through it? You see the inconsistency with denying the doctrine of election. It's not just a doctrine to think about and argue about. It's a doctrine that helps you do life. If God is sovereign in salvation, he's also sovereign in your trials, in the exercise of his will. Back to verse 18. James says, he brought us forth. It means that he begat or bore us. It's used in the same, uh, uh, in a similar sense in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15, referring to the people who became Paul's spiritual children through the gospel. So you understand that after physical birth, there is a spiritual birth that takes place in the life of a believer. And here James is clearly referring to the doctrine of regeneration, otherwise known as the new birth. Listen to G.I. Packer's definition of regeneration. He said, Regeneration is the spiritual change wrought in the heart of a man by the Holy Spirit in which his or her inherently sinful nature is changed so that he or she can respond to God in faith and live in accordance with his will. In other words, how can a dead man live? How can a dead man believe? Well, God sovereignly regenerates the heart so that he can believe. This is the doctrine of regeneration. Again, our SVBC doctrinal statement says, quote, Regeneration is affected through the work of the Holy Spirit that brings God's elect to repentance. 
This is regeneration. Now, lest you think that this is a concocted term invented by ivory tower scholars, let me point to a key passage that explicitly mentions this word regeneration. Titus 3.5. Titus 3.5. It says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. There's that word regeneration. And the best illustration of this truth is in Ezekiel 36. You can turn there if you want to. Ezekiel 36. Speaking to a wayward and apostate Israel who will be restored during the Millennial Kingdom. I'm going to read verses 24 to 27 of Ezekiel 36. Prophesying through the mouth of Ezekiel. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Notice something. It doesn't say, I will invite you to receive my spirit and give you the choice to walk in my statutes. No. God will put the spirit in them Give them a new heart, a new mind, which will cause them to obey God. It's not an invitation. It's not an option. They're not going to come to a place, these Jews, and say, God, you can keep it. I just don't feel like it right now. No. He's going to give them His Spirit. And they will walk. So we understand that the agent of our regeneration is the sovereign Holy Spirit. Now, by what means does He use to accomplish this miracle? I mean, do we just kind of trot along in our unconverted state and all of a sudden, shazam! The Holy Spirit quickens you. Some people might believe that. They get a vision. They get a dream. Something happens to them. All of a sudden they just, oh, think, I think I'll follow Jesus today. Negative. The Holy Spirit uses the means of Scripture to regenerate your heart. By the word of truth, James says, the word of truth. The word of truth is the written, God-breathed revelations, which is the living expression of God Himself. And that's what He uses to regenerate the sinner. His written word. Romans 10.17 Paul said, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. 
So without the Word of God, people aren't going to get saved. See why it's so valuable? Without the Word of God, there is no justification and no sanctification. It's not produced by a vision, a dream, an experience, or even a man-made prayer. Or anything other than the revealed Word. Regeneration is accomplished through the Spirit's work in conjunction with, or by means of, the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. James 1.21. We'll get to that next time. Understand this, that the Holy Spirit does nothing in your life apart from the Word of God. And that's why knowing and believing the Scripture is so important. Holy Spirit does not work out of conjunction with the Word. This is also why it's important to understand the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. It's vital to the life of the believer and the unconverted. Because, as we see here, what will change the core of a man? What will change the core of a man? Only the Spirit of God by illuminating the Word of God. All the psychotherapy the world has to offer is 100% powerless to change a dead sinner who is completely lost and hopeless to a living saint who is completely satisfied and content. The ideas, philosophies of men cannot do anything to change our nature. There's only one book that can change our nature. And that's the Word of God. I could say more about that for another time. Why has God done this? Have you ever asked, asked that question? Why has God done all this? Why did He choose to reveal Himself to us? Why has He told us that He is good? Why has He elected some? Why has he sent the Holy Spirit to do the work? Why? Why not just let mankind die with Noah? Have you ever asked that question? Well, if you haven't, perhaps it's because in our current culture, we ask the opposite don't we? We ask, God, why are you doing this? We say, God, why don't you just save everybody? We say, God, you're so good. Why is this happening? You have Bible-believing Christians that are asking those questions. Well, I'm here to tell you those are the wrong questions. You need to ask yourself, why does God save anybody? Here you go. Here's the reason. So that we would be the kind of first fruits among His creatures. You know what this means? This means that the primary purpose of salvation is not primarily to benefit you. 
The primary purpose of salvation is to fulfill God's sovereign purposes. To be the first, first fruits among His creatures. Now that's a radical idea, isn't it? To think that the primary purpose of God's redemptive plan is not to benefit man primarily. That's radical, isn't it? In fact, I think that would be very offensive to some people. But we see in the text it's so clear. He begat us so we would be the kind of first fruits among his creatures. First fruits, it's the, it, had, you know, it has the Old Testament connotation, uh, historically referring to the lawful practice of offering to God the first and best crops of the harvest. But here, James is not talking about grain, is he? <laughs> He's talking about people. So what in, the, what, in what sense are Christians the first fruits? Well, we have to think again, who is James writing to? He's writing to first century Jewish converts. And we also think back to what Paul wrote in Romans 1, that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power unto salvation to those who believe first to the Jew, and then to all us pagans. So there's a sense in which the Jews, which are James's readers, are the first fruits of Jesus' spiritual harvest in the church's infancy stage. And so what James is getting at here is that those who are regenerated in Christ are the first fruits of the spiritual harvest. So, we get that God elected some to be the first fruits of the spiritual harvest among his creatures. But what's the significance of that? So what? Okay, that makes sense, but what, what is the significance? Well, if we read on and we study the term his creatures, we see that it's also used several times to refer to material creation, his creatures. So what James is also getting at here is that those who are regenerated in Christ in the church age are the first fruits of the ultimate recreation of the new heaven and new earth after this old decaying earth is destroyed. So you see here this verse has some eschatological implications. He, if you're in Christ, he made you to be the first fruits of his new creation. And when the new creation comes, guess what? It's not so we can have a happy party time and have a heavenly Disneyland. The new creation is for him to be glorified. So we need to stop getting the big picture off of ourselves, get the big picture on God's glory. If we get the big picture off ourselves and on his glory, our trials, they seem much less significant. You know what? If my cancer kills me tomorrow, that's okay. Because I'm going to glory. I'm going to glorify him. Even though it's sad to think that my children may be without a father, in the big picture, the grand scheme of things, the God's, God's glory at the end is more significant. So unless we grapple with this idea of God's greatness in salvation, and we have a tunnel vision, and we only think about our earthly trials and our earthly problems and how much Jesus loves us, 
we will be divorced from the grand picture, which is God's glory. I'm here to glorify God through everything. He saved us for his own purpose, which is to make us his, the first installment of his new creation. Today, you've heard very briefly some pretty weighty theological lessons. Haven't you? But I bet you when you walked in here, and if you could see the outline, God is good, God is great. Come on, dude, I know that already. Well, now I think you know it a little bit deeper. God is good in character. He's great in salvation. You've learned about the doctrine of immutability, election, regeneration, and a little bit of the end times. For the sake of time, I have to sum up here. The goodness and greatness of God. These convictions will help guide you through the most unimaginable trial if, if you really own them. You don't own the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God and salvation. I can't do anything for you. No psychologist can do anything for you. You will be on shaky ground. So if you really believe these convictions and own them and continue to develop a deeper understanding of them, You'll persevere. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given us so much truth to glean and to understand and to study, to, to understand deeper. Thank you that you can, we can have the ability to see the big picture, to put you on display and not ourselves. Our goal in this life is not to put ourself on display and to focus on this earth primarily. We are created in your image. You elected us so we could be the first fruits among your recreation. We are yours. So I pray that we will med- ponder and meditate on these truths. Pray that you will humble us. Pray that you will rebuke us and convict us, change us. Help us to be conformed to the image of your Son.